Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is Episode 66, Diagnostic Capability of Contrast-Enhanced Pelvic Girdle MRI in PMR. This article was published by Fruth et al. in the journal Rheumatology in 2020. Now for background, polymyodramatica can be an easy disease to diagnose and a very hard disease to diagnose. Sometimes patients come in and they have classic findings, morning stiffness in their shoulders and their hips, they're over the age of 50, they have elevated inflammatory markers, no signs whatsoever of giant cell arteritis, and of course, they get reliably better to steroids. You start them on 20 milligrams, they call you back three days later and say that they feel absolutely wonderful. PMR can be a lot of fun because a lot of patients do fit this mold, but there are plenty who don't, people who have nonspecific symptoms and don't quite fit criteria. The criteria that I'm referencing are, of course, the 2012 provisional classification criteria. Now, these criteria include morning stiffness of greater than 45 minutes, hip pain or limited range of motion, absence of an RF or an ACPA, presence of other joint pain, and ultrasound criteria that include at least one shoulder with subdeltoid bursitis, biceps tenosynovitis, or glenohumeral synovitis, or alternatively, both shoulders with the same findings. Now, these criteria raise a lot of questions for me. The first is, of course, the limitations of all classification criteria, which is that they're not really made for diagnosing things. They're made for creating a homogenous population for the purpose of of running clinical trials. There's also the problem that I have never used ultrasound to diagnose PMR. Not everyone has access to it, and those that do aren't all trained in doing this particular evaluation. There's also some issues here where other joint pain could easily be OA, and a lot of people who are over the age of 50 have that. And then these criteria don't really include the reliable dramatic response to steroids. I could easily imagine someone who has PMR not quite meeting these diagnostic criteria. The flip side, of course, would be overdiagnosis. Someone with seronegative RA could certainly be diagnosed with PMR when they don't have it. And there is a lot of rotator cuff disease, elevated inflammatory markers, in people over the age of 50. So just because you meet these criteria does not mean that you have PMR. Now, acknowledging these issues, there's been efforts to make PMR more of an imaging diagnosis. Ultrasound is an option. It has a sensitivity and specificity of 79% and 59%, respectively, which is exceptionally mediocre. This is a positive likelihood ratio of 1.92 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.72. I don't know if anyone has heard of the 2-5-10 rule. It's my favorite way to apply likelihood ratios quickly at the bedside. But what that means is that for someone with a middling probability of PMR, say you think it's a 50-50 flip of a coin, if you do this ultrasound evaluation, they'll go from 50 to 65% if they're positive, or 50 to 35% if negative. That's something, but that certainly doesn't clinch a diagnosis for you, nor does it rule it out. There's been interest in doing FDG-PET as well. I'd pulled some data on this, and they had quoted a sensitivity and specificity of 80% and 77%, so that's better. The likelihood ratio for that would be 3.47 for a positive likelihood ratio and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.26. That's going to move the needle quite a bit more, but it's still not a clincher. And the problem here is, of course, that FDG-PET is extraordinarily expensive. And I can't imagine many of us who are going to be running around FDG-PETting everyone who sounds like they have PMR. So we have a problem here. Ultrasound is relatively affordable, and it's non-invasive, and it's available for many of us but it doesn't have that great of performance characteristics. We also have FDG-PET, which has better performance characteristics, though not perfect, and is extraordinarily difficult to get for something like PMR. That brings us to today's article, 
where the authors looked at the capability of MRI of the pelvic girdle to see if they could diagnose PMR more effectively. They performed a retrospective review of 120 patients who underwent contrast-enhanced pelvic MRI for, and I quote, uncertain diagnoses. Now, we've already gotten to two of my concerns with this article. The first being that 120 patients is an extraordinarily round number. 40 of them had PMR, and 80 of them had what they described as other inflammatory and non-inflammatory disease, whatever exactly that means. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't done a whole lot of random pelvic MRIs, and I certainly have not done 120 of them. You wonder immediately if some of these were obtained already because the authors had an idea that this could be useful. You also wonder if there are other people outside of these 40 and outside of these 80 who got screened, but wound up not being entirely included in this paper. Now, three blinded radiologists scored 19 predefined tendinous and capsular sites, really well designed from that perspective. The gold standard diagnosis was expert rheumatologist diagnosis. In a paper that's assessing performance characteristics, the gold standard is the most important thing. You want your gold standard to be an actual gold standard, not something that's subjective, open to interpretation, or in this case, crucially, something that could conceivably be influenced by a rheumatologist who has an MRI in hand and already believes that this is a useful diagnostic modality. More on that later. From that jumping off point, what did they find? Well, like I said, they had 40 cases of PMR, mean age of 64.2 years, elevated inflammatory markers as you'd expect, and the vast majority didn't have RF or CCP positivity. There were, unfortunately, 10 of these patients who had what they call PMR-like onset of RA, as in, a couple years later, they undiagnosed PMR and diagnosed them with rheumatoid arthritis. I'll dig into this a little bit later, but I think it's another limitation of the paper. Speaking of rheumatoid arthritis, that was one of the leading diagnoses of the control group. So, out of the 80 people who were in the controls, 21 had DJD, 21 had rheumatoid arthritis, 16 had XPA, 7 fibromyalgia, 5 other CTDs, and, and the remainder is sort of a grab bag of other potentially rheumatologic disorders. Now, regarding the MRIs themselves, overall it looks like this is something that radiologists are capable of doing. How do we assess that? Well, the first thing is we say, do the radiologists agree about their assessments? And you can calculate a score to see whether one radiologist agrees with the other, which agrees with the other, which agrees with the other in this case. So they did that. Pairwise agreements were all around 90%, and the Cohen's kappa were all around 0 0.7 to 0.8, which indicates some substantial level of agreement. Now you can also say, in between radiologists, if we give you the same images, are you going to read it the same? Now this was even better. Pairwise agreement within radiologists was 95%, 94%, 93%, somewhere around there. And the Cohen's kappas were all uh, in the high 0.8s to 0.9. So what you see here is that this is certainly an assessment that radiologists can make. They agree with themselves, and they agree with each other when they make it. Now I encourage you to download the paper itself. It'll be on my Twitter handle. If you go to ebroom.com slash tweets, the paper will be right there. Because there's a really, really nice little graphic that they make where they superimpose the degree of positivity in each of these 19 extracapular sites in PMR patients and controls. And it does a really nice job of visually demonstrating what they're trying to show. Essentially what they find is that at a number of important sites, the greater trochanter, the pubic symphysis, the ischial crest, Almost everyone who has PMR has inflammation in those areas. And in controls, almost no one has it, except, of course, for the greater trochanter, which just seems to be inflamed across the board. 
they also have a very nice little graph where they show true positives and false positives based on PMR or controls. And what they see is really impressive. There's a pretty good discrimination between patients who have PMR and who have controls. And when you add it all together, they calculate a sensitivity of 95.8% and a specificity of 97.1% if you use greater than or equal to 10 of their sites taken as positive. That is a positive likelihood ratio of 33 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.04. These are extraordinarily good performance characteristics. Now, if you look at it another way and just say bilateral inflammation in greater than equal than four extracapsular sites, including the origin of the rectus femoris and or the adductor longus, so now you're only finding four sites, you have a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 97.5%. That's a positive likelihood ratio of 40 and a negative likelihood ratio of zero. These are, again, extraordinarily strong performance characteristics. This means that if you had a patient who was 50-50 on PMR and they had a positive test, they're essentially a 90% likelihood of having it. And if they had a negative test, they're essentially less than a 5% likelihood of ha having it. That's exactly what you want with a diagnostic test. You get it, it tells you yes, it tells you no, you move on with your life. We don't get very much of that in rheumatology. And if this is true, this is truly an extraordinary finding. Since I first read this paper many months ago, I just haven't been able to stop thinking about it. The numbers are so good that it's almost unbelievable. To that note, let me give you a couple of reasons why it might actually be unbelievable. The first one is, like I said before, they kind of magically hit 40 and 80, and you wonder what's going on there. Perhaps there are actually 47 and 94 people who underwent these MRIs, and they kind of picked the ones that most told the story they wanted to tell. Now, this doesn't necessarily need to be nefarious at all. It may be that they just remembered these cases that were clear, and the cases that weren't clear, so clear either got forgotten or were excluded at some other part of the process. This kind of thing happens all the time. Now, the second problem, and for me, this is the most devastating one, is that I don't get pelvic MRIs very often. For someone to have done 40 of these really makes me think they knew that they were looking for something of value. In the paper, the authors actually say, and I quote, Importantly, the MRI results had no influence on the clinical diagnosis because MRI is not an established methodology to diagnose PMR to date, end quote. I find that extraordinarily hard to believe. If a rheumatologist who already suspected that this would be a useful paradigm got these MRIs, saw a bunch of inflammation all around the pelvic girdle, and thought to themselves, well, that sure looks like PMR to me, that is going to absolutely poison and influence the diagnostic performance of this test. Likewise, say that same rheumatologist got this pelvic girdle MRI and saw no inflammation anywhere around the pelvis, and they said to themselves, well, that's probably not PMR, then that's going to poison it for the control group. So what you can see is that the diagnosis being unblinded and considered the gold standard, while that person who was making the diagnosis was aware of the results of these MRIs, is incredibly problematic. This is an issue in a lot of such studies, and it's an issue that makes these performance characteristics often difficult to validate externally. What do I mean by external validation? I mean another group needs to take the same thing, do it, and do it in a blinded way, and see if they get the same results. Now the next problem that I have is that 10 out of their 40 PMR patients were ultimately diagnosed with RA. They called these people PMR-like onset RA, which, you know, that is a thing that I have certainly seen, but that's also just to me says that this test doesn't discriminate as well between RA and PMR as you would like. 
They did do a sensitivity analysis where they excluded those people, but I don't think that's entirely fair. And last but not least, they didn't look at the shoulders. This could have helped. This could have hurt. In my opinion, the fact that it was admitted is not helpful, but it certainly isn't devastating. You could just get an MRI of the pelvic girdle and ignore the shoulders entirely when diagnosing PMR, but I think a lot of these patients wind up getting an MRI of the shoulders as well. So say they have no inflammation in their pelvic girdle, but they have a lot of extracapsular inflammation in bilateral shoulders. It puts you in kind of a weird pickle that they didn't do both. To bring it all together, this is a really, really interesting paper. You don't get to see this kind of performance characteristics very often in rheumatology. And if true, this is truly a paradigm shifting thing for us, where we can now get MRIs of the pelvic girdle, which aren't nearly as expensive as FDG PET and are actually more available than ultrasound. And we can say with certainty whether someone has or does not have PMR. That would be a real step forward for this disease state. Unfortunately for me, the limitations that I've discussed here are not entirely fatal, but are certainly significantly limiting. I think we need to repeat this and externally validate these results before they sneak their way into any particular guidelines. I also think we all need to take a step back when we're reading this kind of paper and ask ourselves, were the people who made the diagnosis and were considered the gold standard aware of the results of the test they're trying to evaluate when they made the diagnosis itself? You see this a lot in all areas of medicine where we're doing diagnostic testing. It is problematic, and when you see it, the results always look better than they ultimately are. I hope that was helpful and interesting. This has been one of my favorite papers to mull over for the past couple months, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Get the paper itself at ebroom.com tweets, and please give me feedback. My Twitter handle is at ebroom. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great week. 